Sunday morning. I want to talk about something called the sophomore slump. I'm sure some of you have heard of it. We've got a picture of it here. Basically, freshman year, whether that's high school, college, I think this is really talking about college. You've got everything figured out. You've got the vision of the future. You work hard, and then sophomore year hits, and you just fall into a slump, whether it's a lack of motivation, you're tired, a lack of priorities. Things get tough. Hopefully, between the summer uh, after sophomore year, going into your junior year, you kind of climb out of it, and then a little bit more of a slump junior year, and then finally, hopefully, you finish real strong senior year. Maybe you take a victory lap. Maybe you take two victory laps. I don't know. I don't know. It's, it took me one. But you finally finish the task of completing school. Well, this same concept of a sophomore slump is also used in sports, but it's also used in music. And basically the idea is, is that there are bands that come onto the scene and they absolutely explode. I mean, their music is good. It sounds like they've been playing music together their whole lives. They come out, their first album has a ton of hits. And with that comes a lot of pressure. They hit the road, they tour, and then it comes time to hit the studio. It comes time for that second album to be put to work. And there's a lot of bands that really only ever have one really good album. I'm talking about Baja Men. Anybody know those guys? <laughs> Who let the dogs out? Th thank you. Thank you, guys. That's good. Uh, we still don't know who let the dogs out. And I think if they had a better second album, we might know. Um, you just never really heard of them after that. Um, another band like that would be NSYNC. First album was really good. You never really heard of them after that either. Uh, Backstreet Boys did really good, though. Backstreet Boys, respectable band, okay? But I think there are, at least for myself, there are four albums that just completely obliterated that idea of a sophomore slump. The first is Led Zeppelin with Led Zeppelin 2. I'm talking ramble on, it's, it's a beautiful thing, all right? A little before my time. Not so far before my time, Foo Fighters with their second album, sophomore album, The Color and Shape, with a song on there called Monkey Wrench, another song called There Goes My Hero. And every time Jacob walks out of a room, it just, it plays in my head. <laughs> there goes my hero. Every, every time he gets up here to do announcements, it's just, it's playing. Dave Grohl, he's crushing it. Uh, a little bit more of the emo genre. We got My Chemical Romance, their second album, Three Cheers for Sweet Revenge. Doesn't that just sound so angsty? With their hit single, I'm Not Okay. Check, <laughs> check on your kids if they're listening to this. If they're still listening to this, definitely check on them. I think probably my favorite on this list, however, would have to be a band by the name of The Killers. They come out of the gate with an album called Hot Fuss. They got I'm Mr. Brightside on it. They had so many hits within just the first six songs on that. That's all you really needed to listen to for the rest of your life. Some of us are still stuck on that album. I'm not speaking for myself this morning. So they hit the studio, and I'm thinking they're feeling the pressure. Right? They've made so many hits, they've so many singles, so many records have sold. It's time to deliver one more time. And so what does the lead singer Brandon Flowers do in an interview? He says, this album, it's called Sam's Town. And Sam's Town is going to be the best thing in music for the next 20 years. Well, that's a big claim. Was it the best thing in music for the next 20 years? I'm going to go and say probably not. But Certain people, yeah, they would absolutely think for the next 40 years, that's the best album ever. And it was 
awesome. But they went into the studio. They filtered all the pressure. They were a little piece of coal, right? And it pressed them into a beautiful diamond of an album. And they came out of the studio with an awesome record. This idea of a sophomore slump is probably where Jesus is at after where we see him at last week, the very beginning of the gospel of Mark. It is huge. I'm talking about Jesus comes onto the scene. He is baptized by John the baptizer. He comes out of the water. It says that the heavens open. They tore apart. The Holy Spirit comes down in a dove. It embodies it and dwells within Jesus. And God says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Anything that happens after this has got to live up to that. Think of that. Think of that pressure. Now Jesus, he's got something ahead of him that's going to be quite challenging. He's got to go into the studio. He's got to start writing some tracks, come up with some beats, because he's got a whole discography of ministry ahead of him. And so what happens? It says that the Holy Spirit falls on him and dwells within him and gives him the power for the rest of his earthly ministry. And then it compels him to go out into the wilderness. Those were really long announcements this morning. And we only have two verses that we're going to cover in the Gospel of Mark today to make up for that. But don't worry, there's 11 verses in Matthew that we're also going to look at. So I'm just playing. We're going to be here forever. It's going to be awesome. Mark chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. This is what happens after the baptism of Jesus. It says, The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, this is typical Peter fashion, right? Let's just hit the high points. This is the Reader's Digest version. If you weren't quite the student in high school, and you needed to read a book, and then you had to take a test on that book, you would read something called Cliff Notes. Basically, the Gospel of Mark is an extended introduction to a passion narrative at the end of Jesus' life. And so he's hitting the high notes. But what we can take out of this is that the Spirit's call to us is a call to purpose over pleasure. That's our first point this morning. The Spirit's call to us is a call to purpose over pleasure. I think in our minds, certainly as Americans, certainly sometimes as believers that live in the burbs, we can get this idea that God is only going to call us further up and further in in the way the world standards, but really God is only going to call us further up and further in when it comes to kingdom standards. That means sometimes you take a job and it means you take a pay cut. That means sometimes God calls you into an area that isn't quite as nice as the one you just left. God isn't all about our pleasure. If he was, Jesus would have come out of the water, all right, just got baptized. I'm off to Cancun, boys. It's spring break. I'm going to hit that carnival cruise, and I'll see you guys on the other side of this thing. Let's rest up, because we got some good ministry ahead of us. But what does Jesus get called into? He gets called into the wilderness. When? Immediately after he was baptized, he's still wet. The disciples haven't handed him a towel. It was John the baptizer, certainly not John the Baptist, because if John the baptizer was John the Baptist, he would have handed him a nice baptism certificate. So he never would have been able to forget when he was baptized. Jesus is full of the Spirit, and he is compelled, compulsed, go out into the wilderness. Now, if you're tracking, and if you remember from last week, Jesus was already out in the wilderness. So what is this wilderness? Well, this wilderness is a deeper wilderness. 
Because that wilderness, that wilderness was a place of remembrance. That wilderness was a place of repentance. That wilderness was a place where heaven opened. Where is Jesus called to now? He's called to a deeper, darker, more dangerous, more desolate, gloomy wilderness. Also known as the abode of demons. Just think Yuma, Arizona. Okay? Jesus just got called to Yuma. Who wants to go to Yuma? Nobody. Not even on the way to California. Nobody wants to go there. Especially if you're in prison. So, Jesus goes from a place where heaven opened. And now, he's going to a place where hell is about to open. Mark as he is recording for Peter, makes a distinction. He was there for 40 days. Jesus is fasting in the wilderness for 40 days. That is six weeks. Now, I want you guys to think about skipping breakfast this morning and skipping lunch. How excited are you going to be for dinner tonight? Now, let's just skip all the meals in one day, but let's do that for six weeks straight. That's 40 days is significant. This 40 days signifies Israel's 40 years in the wilderness. It is an example kind of calling back to Moses' 40 days on Mount Sinai, Elijah's 40 days on Mount Horeb. This is telling us that Jesus is not only a new Adam, Jesus is not only a second Israel, but he is a better Moses. Moses was a forerunner of who Jesus would be. He is a superior prophet, one of his three roles. So what who is present in this wilderness? Well, Jesus is alone for most of this time. He is isolated, but he is communing deeply with the Father. His mind not on physical things, but on spiritual things. And there's also this sound that Jesus keeps hearing. It goes, it's his stomach. He is hungry. He has not eaten for 40 days. This is appealing to the fully God side. This isn't the fully God side of Jesus. This is the fully human side. He has having a human experience here. He is about to die. Satan. Satan then appears. And Satan has one plan, and we'll see that as this scripture unfolds today, and that is to get Jesus to bend the knee. And then Mark makes a distinction here. There were also wild animals thinking that these wild animals appeared with Satan, suggesting that they are allied with Satan. And all of this, remember, all of this is written to a Roman audience. What would a Roman person have thought when they saw wild animals? Well, they would have thought immediately to the Colosseum. They would have thought immediately to the Christians who were being covered in the skin and the fur of wild animals and being eaten alive. What Mark is painting here is a horrific picture. Maybe you've seen a good boxing match. Round one is about to start. Jesus versus Satan begins. But why? So that Satan, from the start of Jesus' ministry, could derail everything. So that he could take our perfect, sinless Savior and make him sinful. So that he could seemingly remain in charge of all things here on earth until Jesus' final victory. This takes us into Matthew verses 4, 1 through 11, in our second point this morning, and that is that God's will is greater than our desire. God's will is greater than our desire. It reads, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. 
And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, in each one of these temptations, we have some, some things that we need to consider. Then we need to break down the temptation of Satan to Jesus, and then we need to break down Jesus' response. And within all of this, it is absolutely incredible. I'm, I'm getting super nerdy today, so I hope that you follow along with me. There are things to consider here. And we've slightly covered this already. Jesus is famished. That means that this temptation was real. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever fasted and coupled that with praying and see God move in your life. That is a spiritual discipline that we should still be about as a church today. But man, that first day is terrible. All right, you start getting real grumpy. Your kids don't want to be around you. Your wife didn't want to be around you when you started thinking about fasting. You need to up the prayer. Second day, it gets a little bit better. Third day, that hunger, those hunger pangs, they start to subside. Okay, maybe I can get through this. About week one, you're all right. Week two, they start to come back. But remember, Jesus is fasting for 40 days. 40th day, these things are coming back in full. Again, remember, he is focused on God the Father, but there are physical distractions that are taking place within his body that are distracting him. He is absolutely famished. He is close to death. He needs to eat. And so with that in mind, now comes Satan's first temptation. Hey, Jesus, if you are really this powerful, man, feed yourself. Is that really so sinful, Jesus? Just feed yourself. So we have to ask that same question. Is that actually a sin? Would it have been a sin for Jesus to feed himself? Certainly it wouldn't have been in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not feed yourself. No, absolutely not. But in this circumstance, because the Holy Spirit calls Jesus out into the wilderness, and Jesus is always perfectly within the will of God, walking that tightrope perfectly, keeping it perfectly balanced. For Jesus to have eaten here would be for him to go against God's will. And we know that Jesus never once steps outside of God's will because he is our perfect, obedient perfect sacrifice. And if he were to take one step outside of it, that perfect sacrifice, that word perfect would just be erased completely. So sinful in most circumstances? Absolutely not. Going against God in this circumstance? Absolutely. We also see that Jesus came to rely solely on the will of the Father. So once again, Falling into temptation would look like him feeding himself because that is Jesus then acting upon his own desire. That is not the Father's pleasing and perfect will. And we see Satan do something here that Satan always does. And I hope that you catch it this morning in Jesus' life and catch where he does it in your life. And that is Satan was appealing to seemingly good things. Now Satan, he parades in the light. That is how he does things in the life of the believer. Certainly, he operates in darkness. But man, this facade is full of light. He's also known as the shining one. How was he parading in light in Jesus' life here? First, he was appealing to Jesus' position. Would God really want 
his beloved son to starve? Now, we don't know this scripturally. I would say you could almost bank on the fact that Satan was there at the baptism. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And now he is using that against Jesus. He is appealing to his well-being. Jesus, how can you save other people if in this moment you can't actually turn these rocks into delicious carbs and save yourself? And then he is appealing to his power. Can't you just magically feed yourself right now? Now, Satan is doing what Satan has always done. He has one play, and he runs it really well. And I've fallen for it so many times in my life, and I'm pretty sure you've fallen for it multiple times in your life. And that is that he takes good things, and he just slightly, slightly twists them. We can see this all the way back to the very beginning in the book of Genesis, Genesis 3, 1 through 5, as he is talking to Eve in the form of the the serpent. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What is Satan doing in the very beginning that he has continued to do all the way until our lives today that we see him doing here in Jesus' life? He is taking scripture and he is twisting it. You better believe he knows scripture better than you. This is why we need to get on it and start knowing scripture because it will be used against us. Satan, as we're about to see, is going to take the world's good and try to distract you from God's greatness and say, here, follow this until it absolutely derails your life. And then we get Jesus' response. But he answered, it is written, and I love this. This is so just clap back of Jesus right here. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, quoting Deuteronomy 8.2. Essentially what Jesus is saying is it would be better to starve to death than eat outside of the will of the Father. The will of my Father means more than food to me. In fact, the will of my Father means more than life. For us, God's will is greater than our desire. We have to fully embody that. We have to realize that when we make Jesus our Lord, that means he is our master. And if Jesus is our master, that means we submit to his will in our lives. That means that God's will is greater than our desire for success. God's will is greater than our desire to end up in that next relationship. God's will is greater than our desire to climb the corporate ladder. It's greater than our desire for comfortable living. It's greater than our desire for the three C's of hip-hop, cash, money, cars, and clothes. Some of you are like, I didn't know those were three C's. I don't know either. I just made that up. (laughs) God's will is greater than our desire to be outwardly facing perfect people with a perfect home, with a perfect lifestyle, the perfect family. God's will is greater than our desire for our life to follow our plan and to be set to our expectations. God's will is greater than our lives. And when you say, Jesus, you are Lord, 
you are signing up saying, I submit myself to this. Whatever it is that you want of me, God, I'm following that. I'm laying my plans aside and I'm going full steam ahead right into your will right after the example of Jesus. Then we see point three. God's will is greater than partial promise. God's will is greater than partial promise. This is verses five through seven. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, chump, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Emphasis added. That was on me. Things to consider here. This starts to get kind of crazy, right? You're like, okay, how are they going from point A to point B? It says that Satan took him. Is this in a vision? Do they just teleport? Or is this some Harry Potter stuff? They got like some boot that they touched and it took him somewhere else. Uh, I'm just, we don't know. We don't know. If it was a vision, do know that it would have seemed so real. It was like they were actually there. But also, this could have been an actual physical event. So then I start to ask the question, well, if he took him to the royal temple, where, where was this place? Where did this actually happen? And the ideal place for this was called the royal portico of Herod. And I've got a picture here. So basically, what we're looking at here is this is the royal portico of Herod. If he would have been up on this point, looking down over this cliff, he would have been seeing into the valley of Kedron, Hedron. Nope, Kedron. There we go. Let's mix all those words together. And from the point of this tower right here, looking down, there would have been many witnesses. But also, it doesn't look very big to us. We're kind of on the bottom looking up, but you can get on a table that's like six feet high and look down, and it seems like 30 stories. From that point, Jesus would have been seen by many. From that point, that would have been super, super high up. So, that in mind, Satan's second temptation. Okay, Jesus, it's clear that you trust in the Father. Now, let's show the world how much you really trust in him. Look, it says right here, you won't get hurt. This is a win-win. If you throw yourself from this tower, these people are going to see you. So do you, you really trust him? And when Satan quotes this, he actually misquotes Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. And the words he chooses to leave out, remember, he's going to use Scripture against you. The world's good against God's greatness. The words he leaves out, are in all your ways, which contextually translates to in all your righteous ways. And so he is using this scripture against Jesus. God will protect you no matter what. I'm going to leave this part over here out about you actually needing to be righteous. And you being righteous means you are within his will. And if I can get you to step out of God's will, then that would make you unrighteous. And that would make you possibly unprotected. Maybe by God's grace, he still would have protected Jesus. Maybe so. But Jesus... Jesus responds with this. 
Again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. When he says this, he quotes Deuteronomy 6, 16. Again, Jesus knows he can do nothing apart from the Father. He is setting a precedence for the beginning and the rest of his ministry. God didn't say jump, so I'm not going to jump. You say jump, you think I should say how high. That's not how it goes. You will not trick me. You see, Jesus knows the word. He knows the word because he is the word, and the word will not be used against him. And he will use it to fight back. We should do the same. So, again, could good have come from this? Absolutely. Through the eyes of Satan and through the deceived eyes, if Jesus would have fallen for this, people would have been everywhere. They would have seen Jesus jump off. They would have seen angels save him. Surely that is the Son of God. Not only did we see him baptized over here, the other day my cousin was there, but now I'm over here at the temple, and man, I don't even know how they got over here so quick. And now he's jumping off and angels are flying to save him. Surely that is the Lord. Surely that is the Messiah. Surely we should believe in him and follow him. But it was against God's plan. And because it was against God's pleasing and perfect plan, Jesus says, no, there is a better way. That is a shortcut of a way. And I will not follow it. Good outcomes by disobedient means are always a trap. For us, God desires obedience. And God desires obedience over man-made, man-fabricated, man-engineered results. Just because the outcome is something that we want, it's something that our hearts desire, does not always mean that the way that you get there is the right way to go about it. We can see this when we take shortcuts in life. We can see this in churches all over. Win souls at whatever means. I would say, yes, it is so important to win the soul of a lost person for Jesus. But if it means beating your people down, if it means using your people to build the church, instead of using the church to build the people, then we've got everything flipped. You see, now we're not trying to build the kingdom, we're trying to build our kingdom, and that is never what we were called to do. So we submit to God's plan. We submit to God's timing. We submit to God growing his church. We submit to God's plan and his timing in those other people's lives, and we ask God if we can be a part of it. We don't rush the process. We don't put him in a high-pressure situation. We trust in God. We believe that he is the Lord, and so we are going to wait on his timing. God desires obedience over anything that we can manufacture, anything that we can engineer ourselves. Fourth and final point today, God's will is greater than the easy way out. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him. And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Things to consider. We don't know what mountain this was on. I like to think this is like Mount Everest, 
before uh, tourists started going up there and dying at the top, and it's too dangerous to get them down, so there's a bunch of human popsicles up there. Did you guys hear about that? Now you did. Uh, what probably wasn't Mount Rushmore. There weren't any presidents on that yet. Uh, we don't know, but we do know that the kingdoms of the earth could be seen, and Satan says this to Jesus. Hey, all of this can be yours. Now we have to ask ourselves, does that mean that all of this was Satan's to give? Well, if we look throughout the rest of Scripture, we see a lot of Scripture saying that for a time being, it is Satan's, but it's on loan from God. You see, back to the very beginning, this was supposed to be ours to rule and reign over with authority. It was intended for man, but we gave it up when sin entered into the picture. And so now Satan is on temporary loan of all of this and thinking that he is actually in charge and Jesus knowing that he really is not offers it to Jesus. Get the circumstances here. Get the positions here. A posing prince offers all the kingdoms of the earth to the one true king. Now, if Jesus accepts, he will go from the suffering servant, from the suffering savior that Mark paints this beautiful picture of all throughout his gospel to the shortcut savior, to somebody who's sold out. Does it make sense for Jesus to accept in this moment? If you remove God's redemptive plan out of this equation completely, then yeah, it absolutely does. Now Jesus gets to bypass everything. He gets to bypass the cross. All these people, man, they're going to lay down their idols. They're going to lift flags. They're going to just praise the name and shout to the top of their lungs, praise Jesus. But that's not the way. Because if that is the way, then that means that Jesus has bowed the knee to Satan and said, no, I see your temporary, weak sovereignty. And I worship you if it means that I don't have to take the cross and these people will still worship me. After all, isn't that the end goal? No, not by those means. Because by those means now, you and I are taken out of the picture because there is no story of redemption. There is no savior that takes the cross having lived perfectly inside the will of the Father to be the perfect savior, the perfect sacrifice for our behalf. Now our sin is still upon us. And now we have to look to the enemy. Maybe he can save us. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus, in his third response, says, Be gone. I bend the knee to God alone. I only serve and worship him. Jesus not only resisted, but in round one of this heavyweight bout throughout the rest of the 16 chapters within this gospel, Jesus is victorious. The scorecards are in. He has won this first round unanimously. He stayed the course. He was victorious. For us, it's just the beginning of our victory. Jesus standing up to the enemy time after time again, remaining within the perfect will of the Father to take the cross to be the perfect sacrifice for us. Jesus gives us victory. Because Jesus gives us victory, do not settle for the shortcut. Shortcut with your spouse is always going to be to sit on the couch and pacifyingly stream instead of actually have an intentional conversation. 
Conversations are hard. They might be awkward. Don't take the shortcut. With your kids, it's always going to be to bypass the mess. It's always going to be to bypass the noise. It's always going to be just for a little bit more time of peace and quiet. And so you hand them the device. You hand them the screen. Is that okay from time to time? Absolutely. But if that becomes the method in which you're parenting, that's not the way it was designed to be. Don't take the shortcut. Don't take the shortcut with relationships. Don't settle for social media when you can have actual human interaction with people around you and have an eternal impact on their life. I don't know how much impact keyboard warriors have had, at least when it comes to me. Don't take the shortcut of intimacy. Don't halt in pursuit of your spouse's heart and replace it with something as false as pornography. Don't take the shortcut. Don't take the shortcut at work when a little lie, just fudging the numbers a little, will get you the raise that you needed, but will cost you all the character that you had inside of you. Don't take the shortcut in worship. Don't remove King Jesus from his throne and put a little G God in his place. He is king. He is victorious. And we begin to see that right here. The enemy will offer you shortcut time and time and time again, but at what cost? Shoot forward in the book of Mark, Mark 8:36. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? So we fight back. We fight back because we know our enemy. We fight back because we know the word, and we fight back because we don't rely on a victory that could ever come from us, but is fully and solely dependent on the victory of Jesus. So let's take all of this into account. How are we to take all of these words from Mark, from Matthew, apply them into our lives and walk out of here today? I think we just look at Jesus. Let's just do what he did. Stay sensitive to the Spirit. If God's calling you into a tough season, you go into that tough season. You follow his will. It's not always going to be Jesus equals paradise. What the Bible shows us is Jesus equals suffering that is worth it. It's only short And on the other side of eternity, that's when we will experience paradise. Resist the devil and stick to God's plan even when it hurts. This is one of Jesus' awesome victories. Next week, we start to move into the life and the ministry of Jesus as he comes out of the wilderness. And I cannot wait to explore that with you. Let's pray.